Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we are speaking with John Cicerelli. Since 2003, John has been the director of the City Animal Care and Services Program in San Jose, California. John is also on the board of the California Animal Control Directors Association and is their state legislative coordinator. He began his career as an animal control officer in Arlington, Virginia in 1994. His first experience as a director of an agency was in the city of San Bernardino, California. John has built community partnerships and implemented programs that have reduced the number of cats and kittens entering the San Jose shelter system by more than 25% in the last four years. John holds a bachelor's degree in biology from George Mason University and a master's of public administration. In 2011, he was recognized by the California State Assembly for achievements and meritorious service to the community. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me today. So, John, how did you get involved in animal welfare and your interest in community cats? Well, those two questions have two different answers. Getting involved in animal welfare was sort of a strange thing for me. I was in Virginia at the time. I had always kind of surrounded myself with animal-related things. I was volunteering down at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. I was a wildlife driver, mostly for orphan wildlife, just picking them up from one place and getting them to a rehabilitator. I was working in a pet store. I had a menagerie of animals in my own house, everything from dogs and cats to fish and ferrets and snakes and everything. But I was getting engaged and I was still finishing up my biology degree. And the woman who I was engaged to said, you know, you got to get a real job. You can't work at a pet store if we're getting married. So I went out and got a real job and I was working at a wastewater treatment plant. And I was using my biology degree because it has a lot of chemistry. And I was working in the lab testing all the various phases of a wastewater treatment plant that you really don't want to know any more detail about than that. And I really hated that job. By the time I got to about six to eight months into that job, I was looking for reasons not to go into work each day. And I remember one day I had already called in sick that week and I was driving into work and I was thinking to myself, you know, maybe if I just hit the car in front of me hard enough to create a dent in my car, but not hard enough to like make it inoperable, then I'd have an excuse not to go to work today because I could say I was in an accident, right? And then I realized the absurdity of that thought that, gosh, if you hate your job so much that you're willing to crash your car and not go to work, maybe you ought to go back to what you love doing, which is working around animals. And so that evening on the way home from work, I picked up the newspaper because back then in the 90s, that's where you found jobs. And I looked under the letter A for animal and there was a job and it said animal warden. I had no idea what that was. That's the same thing as an animal control officer. And it was in Arlington, Virginia, which was just down the road from me. I was just outside Arlington, Virginia. So I went in and applied and they hired me for hardly any money. I think I made $18,000 full time my first year. But I found I really enjoyed it. I really liked being out in the field. I really liked the variation from day to day. 
I really enjoyed working with animals, helping to save them. And it's a, it's a nice little animal welfare league. It's called the Animal Welfare League of Arlington. They're still there today, of course. So that's really how I got my start was because I hated the job I was in at the time. <laughs> wow. I mean, you were really at the edge there and, you know, willing to do anything. But you went from one extreme to the other because it sounds like you found your passion then. Yeah, I really did. And I wasn't even aware of it. And even in fact, as I was working there and finishing my undergraduate degree, I still thought I might go and do something else. Like one of the things I really wanted to do in the early 90s, they were still reintroducing wolves into Yellowstone. And if you had a degree in biology, you had a shot at becoming a wildlife biologist. And I wanted to go out to Wyoming and follow these packs of wolves around to study their reintegration and work with the ranchers to try to protect them and all that. But I never got hired for any of those jobs. Those federal jobs are hard to get. And one day I was looking in the back of a NACA magazine. That's the National Animal Control Association. And they had this trade magazine and they would put jobs in the back of there. And I saw this job in San Bernardino to be the director. And it paid like twice what I was making where I was already. And I thought, well, maybe that's a career path. And I went with it and I found I really, not only did I enjoy it, but I seemed to have an aptitude for it. So you went and got your degree in public administration after you had committed to being in animal control services? Yeah. You know, when I was first named a director, I was 28 years old. So that's pretty young. And I thought at the time, if I want to advance in this career against all these other folks who have 20 and 30 years worth of experience on me being directors, then I probably need some kind of an advantage. And so we were lucky that in the city I was working in, we had a relationship with the local university, which is through Cal State. And it was pretty cheap in those days to do a master's degree. So I just did the master's degree to try to sort of get that competitive advantage for the next step, which then took me to San Jose. That's great. I actually did some extra studies in nonprofit management and urban planning. Ironically, I originally thought I was going to be an urban planner. I use those tools that I learned. I do use it in nonprofit management, too. So it's very interesting, the path that we take. So can you tell us a bit about what you're doing now and what are the main points that are affecting you with regards to Community Cats in California? Community Cats is definitely spreading not only in California, but in the United States. Now, in San Jose, we were one of the first to dip our toe in that water back in um, 2010. If you recall, you know, everybody remembers we were going through a recession for a few years there. So for those of you who don't know or are listening, San Jose is the largest city in Silicon Valley. So Silicon Valley particularly um, goes up and down with the economy because it's a lot of innovative investment kind of stuff. And that dries up pretty quick when the markets go bad. And so we were going through the bust and boom cycle in, you know, 2005, six, seven, everything was going okay. And we were actually seeing progress towards reducing intake with cats, primarily through offering a lot of low cost spay neuter in the community. We were doing cat neuters for $5 and cat spays for $10 for anybody, no income qualifying, just walk in, we don't care. We just want to spay and neuter every cat we can get our hand on. Very supportive of TNR and, and all the activities. We had round table meetings with our TNR folks then the recession hits. And like a lot of agencies in the United States, we found that when we hit a bad recession, your animal intake goes up in general. I mean, it, it's not a 100% guarantee it's going to happen. But for the most part, that's what happens in animal shelters as people lose housing and things like that. And sure enough, our cat intake started just skyrocketing back up and we lost all the gains we had made in the years before. And I remember sitting there in the winter, like 2009, 2010, I just hired a new shelter manager named Stacy Danes, and I had been pointing out to her, look at all the good stuff we're doing to support cat spaying and neuter and TNR and everything, and yet our cat intake is still going up. 
So she hears about this program out of Florida called Feral Freedom, and they had just started it the year before. And it was a partnership between Jacksonville Government Animal Shelter and another group called First Coast No More Homeless Pets. And what they were doing was something very different. They were taking the cats that were already in the shelter and spaying and neutering those cats and just putting them back wherever they came from. Now, on the face of it, that doesn't seem like that dramatic of a change, but that's actually, for our industry, quite a schism, right? It's a very different way of doing business because in our business, up until that point, really, once the animal was in the shelter, you had to find permanent pathways, right, for it to go to. And one of the pathways was not back into the community on its own. It was either you're going to adopt it, send it to a rescue group that's going to adopt it. If you're lucky with a few of your feral cats, you might find a barn for them to live in. And then otherwise, you're going to euthanize the excess. And that excess tended to run in the 70 to 80% range, very high. I'm happy to report that that's getting better on average, but we still see a pretty common trend in shelters that don't really support TNR and don't try community programs. They're still going to run a 70 to 80% euthanasia rate for cats coming into their facility because they don't have other outlets for them. And so we decided, well, we tried everything else. Let's go ahead and try this. And the only regret we had after getting the program up and running was that we hadn't started it sooner and hadn't known about it sooner because it literally changed not just outcomes for cats within the shelter, but it changed outcomes for everything in the shelter. It changed our view, our philosophy and focus. And what we were saving and helping on the cat side was actually helping us do better on the dog side as well. I actually just interviewed Rick Descharm about the Feral Freedom Program. So that's a great segue and and continued endorsement of the work that he's done down in Jacksonville. How do communities convince other communities that a program like Feral Freedom is the way to go? I mean, you've got the animal control hat on, but yet you're saying some communities aren't supportive of it. So how would you go about advocating for that kind of change? Well, one of the things is looking at data, really. You know, I get asked to speak quite a bit. I've team taught a few times with Rick Ducharme, but I've also gone to specific individual agencies or jurisdictions to speak to them. I've spoken in front of other people's councils to try to convince them. One of the things I do find is it does seem to carry a little more weight with government officials. It helps for them to hear from another government official rather than they think, oh, you're just the Humane Society person or you're just a rescue group. You know, I don't know how much I can believe here. But one of the most compelling ways is to use their own data against them. And what you do is you look at their data and you show them, well, here's what you've been doing for who knows how many decades. And here's what you've accomplished in that period of time. And what you've typically going to accomplish is almost nothing, right? You'll be able to show that pretty much you're still euthanizing about the same rate, 70%, give or take, of cats coming in. The intake is not improving. It's not going down. And you've tried this method of catch and kill, lethal control, as I call it, where just anybody who brings in a cat that they don't like, if you can't find that cat in an adoptive home, you're just going to euthanize it. And what has that gotten you to date? Where has that taken you? And so you can show them that it's taken them nowhere. In some cases, you can actually show them that it's gotten worse. And that's typically driven by populations of humans, right? As their city or county has grown and more people have moved in, they actually have larger amounts of intake as human population increases. And so 
when you really look at their historical data, in many cases, it's fairly alarming right off the bat. And then what you do is you show them, look, now here's what we did. And here's our statistics. Before we started the program, we looked just like you. Then we started the program and we don't look anything alike anymore, statistically speaking. And here's how you do these programs. And then you help explain to them the process of putting them in place. And it turns out these kind of community cat programs are actually not hard for shelters to do because most shelters have a process, for example, for getting a cat ready for adoption, right? You're going to do a health check, a behavior check. You're going to do a spay neuter and some vaccinations and all that stuff. And then you put it out there for adoption and hopefully someone adopts it. The only difference in a community cat program is that last step. Because you're still going to spay and neuter them, you're still going to vaccinate them, and instead of putting up for adoption, you're just going to put them back to wherever they came from. That's the only difference. And so it's not even that difficult logistically for shelters to figure out because it's something in most cases they're already doing just for a different purpose. And now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Ready to make a big difference for cats in your community? We've got an exciting opportunity that can jumpstart your efforts. The Community Cats Podcast has launched Community Cats Grants. When you qualify for this innovative program, you'll gain valuable knowledge about how to raise funds for your spay-neuter efforts. Plus, we'll match the funds you raise up to $1,000, doubling your ability to make a difference for cats. Fundraising doesn't have to be scary. We'll be with you every step of the way. Check it out. You can find all of the details on the Community Cats Podcast website, under our education menu. Let's join forces to make the world a better place for community cats. Wearing the adoption program or the other nonprofit hat, one thing that they're not getting is an adoption fee. So when they're returning that cat back out there, they're not getting a revenue stream, but yet they are saving money because you're not being held in the adoption center for months and months on end. But yet you do have to fundraise for spay neuter unless you do have any municipal funding, but that's usually pretty far and few. So fundraising is definitely a significant challenge for many groups. It is. My observation has been particularly with smaller groups. You know, if it's a full on brick and mortar humane society with government contracts, it doesn't tend to be as big an issue, although I have seen it be an issue, surprisingly. But typically with smaller groups, Everybody's focused on the animals they want to save, which is great, but nobody's really focused on running the organization itself, or they're only sort of lightly focused on that because really what they want to focus on is putting their hands on animals and saving them and helping them. And that leaves no one to do the fundraising and the administrative tasks and the logistics to make life better. And really, I think what folks need to do is look for people that are better at those things. And maybe they're just happy that someone's doing this stuff about animals, but they're less interested in being a big foster home and doing all that work all the time, but they're happy to help you with some legal advice or, of course, fundraising. Board members should be at the front of helping the organization raise funds, particularly if you can't afford to hire someone to raise money for you. Then your board members are the first ones that should be out there asking for money. Yeah, oftentimes many of these organizations are just run by a handful of people, three to five board members, and then maybe even a dozen or so volunteers. And the skill that's so important is the desire to delegate and the willingness to take the time to find more people to join the team and grow from there because you can't sustainably maintain organization for very long with just a half a dozen people. No, especially if all those people are focused on only one aspect of the organization, which is, you know, helping the cats or the dogs or whatever they're helping. And nobody's really focused on running the organization. Right. 
One other thing I stress with the smaller groups too is really to focus their efforts, target geographically and target in other ways too, just so that they're not overstretching themselves because obviously burnout happens and it's usually when a group actually falls apart. In terms of your work with the smaller groups and with other groups all around California, how are things going for community cats in California in general? Well, we've got several organizations now that are really focused on better programs for cats. I wouldn't say we're quite yet at a critical mass in California, but I feel like we're well on track to get there. There are some particularly larger organizations that are doing it, but there are some large ones that do. I mean, San Jose is not a small organization. We serve 1.2 million people. San Jose is the 10th largest city in the United States. Most people don't realize that, but it's quite large. So we're a big city that's able to do these kind of programs, which is helpful to try to get other big cities and jurisdictions. But California's human demographics and population is a little bit different. So where San Jose is, we're in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is sort of central north of the state. Once you get out north of us and out west of us, it gets a lot more rural real quick. And then when you get down to Southern California, so the Los Angeles area, You get heavy-duty populations, big, huge populations. I think L.A. County itself has 14 million people in it or something like that. So these are huge population bases. And in fact, when you look statewide at all the cat euthanasia in a given year in California, about half of all that cat euthanasia can be attributed to just three agencies in Southern California. So that just gives you a sense of the weight and the size of those And unfortunately, those organizations aren't really focused on cat programs. So you can see how much difference you can make if just three organizations would change their minds and start doing something different. It would be very meaningful statistically for the whole state. But unfortunately, some of the folks down in SoCal aren't as quick to take up these ideas. We do have a couple jurisdictions down there, Long Beach being one of them, Orange County, Los Angeles being one of them. And there is some community cat stuff going on in San Diego through the San Diego Humane Society and SPCA there, although the government agency isn't participating directly in that. So there is some flags planted, but we definitely need to see more flags planted. I think if one of those big agencies finally started doing it and the other ones could feel like they wouldn't be strung up in a tree or something, because that tends to be the issue is the directors are fearful of whatever pushback they can imagine, whether they think that's going to be the public who's annoyed by the cats or they think that's going to be the advocates who are wanting them to do their programs. Really, when you're in a government director position, you're kind of caught in the middle of all that stuff. And so it's hard because no matter which direction you step, someone's going to be critical of the steps you take. My advice to them is always the same. I'd rather err on the side of defending saving a cat than defending killing a cat. And so if you can just turn your focus around and say, look, no matter what, you're going to be criticized for what you do, at least be criticized for saving lives. It's a good point. I want to swing back to San Jose. Would you be willing to share a little bit of data of the changes that have happened over your tenure there? Let's see. Just before we started the program, we took in about 11,500 cats that year. And at the best part of the program, we got that down below 8,500. It's creeped up a little bit. We're in the mid-8,000s now for cats, but that's about a 3,000 cat difference. And just to kind of think about the difference that can make, if you were to say that the cost for us to just take care of a cat, keep it in the shelter for several days, and then euthanize it, let's say that cost a shelter $100 per cat. 3,000 cats means $300,000 that we're not spending on that activity. It also means 3,000 cats we're not having to house, meaning taking up space, because those cats don't exist anymore. 
And we saw these reductions both on the adult cat side, which is what our program targets, right? You're spaying and neutering adult cats that are already living outside in a neighborhood. But we've seen equivalent declines in both adult cats and kittens and their intake. So we know it's affecting the birth rates, which is, of course, what you're really trying to do. And each year we do about 2,500 cats through that program alone. That's cats that come into the animal shelter and then they're spayed, neutered, and turned right back around and go back to where they came from. These are not relocated, by the way. Some people confuse this with things like colony management or relocation programs. It's not anything like that. It's really as simple as I'm explaining it. We spay and neuter the cat. We give it some vaccinations. Of course, we put a microchip in for future tracking, and then it goes right back to wherever it came from, where it belongs, where it lived, where it grew up, and where it had been living successfully. Now, if the cat is unhealthy or something's wrong or it's not getting food and it's emaciated, then we wouldn't do that program because we don't feel the cat's being successful in the neighborhood. But 99 point something percent of the cats are perfectly successful. All you have to think about is common sense when you look at that. If cats weren't that successful at living outside, we wouldn't be having this conversation about community cats and we wouldn't be dealing with community cats running around our neighborhoods. The reason they're around and the reason we struggle with this problem is because they are quite good at living with human beings. That's what they've evolved to do. And frankly, American society is pretty generous in terms of the amount of resources we leave behind for other animals to live off of. There's plenty. And if it's not cats, it's going to be some other animal. Yeah, absolutely. Ecologists will tell you if you count the number of, say, raccoons in a suburban or urban area, the number of raccoons per square mile is far higher than it would naturally be if humans weren't living there. And so this affects all kinds of animals, everything from rats and mice that live around us all the way up the food chain. And cats are certainly included in that as well. Do you calculate your live release rate for San Jose? Sure. Yeah. So for this last fiscal year that just ended, 88% for cats and kittens combined and total for the whole year for everything, dogs, cats, and all the pocket pets and everything, 87%. So that's fantastic. That's a great statistic. Yeah, it's pretty good, especially when you consider we take in over 17,000 animals a year. So it's no small task to figure out what to do with all of them. Yeah, I always call it animal solitaire. It's like a lot of moving parts and stuff. So absolutely. Yeah. So, John, if people are interested in finding out more about your program or finding out more about what you're doing, how can they find you? There's a variety of ways. First of all, if you just type my name into Google, you can find even YouTube recordings of presentations I've given about cats and about other subjects in this field. My name is spelled J-O-N-C-I-C-I-R-E-L-L-I. If you have direct questions for me, you can always email me at J-O-N.C-I-C-I-R-E-L-L-I at sanjose.gov, that's S-A-N-J-O-S-E-C-A, all one word, dot G-O-V. And if you just want to look around at our website and see some of the stuff we've got up there, that's sanjoseanimals.com. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? You know, for those of you, anybody who's struggling or trying to get a program going and having difficulty, I would just say keep trying. Once you get there, you will realize it was worth the effort. It was worth the fight. You know, I think we were lucky enough in San Jose that I was on board as a director, so it was a little smoother. I realized the people in my position are sometimes the ones that are in the way of doing these things. But building relationships with those organizations and helping them move forward will pay off. So just don't give up. Excellent, John. That's great advice. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. And hopefully we'll be able to have you on in the future. Sounds great, Stacey. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Community Cats podcast. If you could go to iTunes and review the show, we'd really appreciate it. When you do, take a screenshot of your review, go to communitycatspodcast.com forward slash review and enter your information and we'll send you a t-shirt. While you're there, don't forget to check out all the ways you can support the content you're passionate about. Thanks, everyone. Ah!